Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to Mark's Gospel. And this morning we're looking at Mark uh, 8 at verse 1 to 21. And you'll find this on page 843. Mark chapter 8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said uh, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? One of the adages that we oftentimes hear is is that those who fail to learn from the mistakes of the past are doomed to repeat them. And sayings like that are trying to emphasize that we need to learn from past experiences because the past and the issues of the past have a way of resurfacing themselves. We may face different situations, but many of the issues underlying those situations will creep up again and again. And so we are to be people who learn from history and we're to be people who learn 
uh, from the past. This morning, as we're coming back uh, to Mark's gospel, uh, you may notice that we're coming to one of the miracles uh, that Jesus performed. But it is a miracle in which Jesus uncovers something of the hardness of the heart and ultimately the need for God to intervene uh, in order to remove that hardness, to remove that barrier. And this morning, uh, we want to think about uh, that reality of the hardness of the heart and the need for God's intervention, ultimately. And we want to think about these verses in three thoughts. We want to think about the detection of something wrong. Uh, We want to think about the demonstration of something very wrong. And then ultimately, we want to think about the danger that is expressed about that problem. First, we have a detection that is something wrong. As we're coming to Mark, uh, Mark's gospel, uh, you may have noticed that we read there in chapter 8 of Jesus feeding a multitude. And you may be sitting there uh, wondering to yourself, didn't we just hear about Jesus feeding a multitude? And we did. In Mark 6, Jesus fed 5,000 men. Uh, and now here in Mark 8, we're being told that Jesus fed another multitude. And these are two separate incidences. Uh, They are different events that took place. And yet both of them are included in Mark's gospel. And there is a a reason for that. Uh, Mark is drawing attention uh, to these events. And in fact, as you come to verse 1, it seems that Mark is even hinting that we should look at them in terms of a comparison. Notice there in verse 1 that he uses the word again. When again a great crowd had gathered unto him. There is this mention of an echo of something that had already happened. Before, Jesus had a great crowd around him, and then he performed that miracle of the feeding of the multitude. And you remember that in doing that, Jesus was demonstrating himself to being the compassion of God expressed towards sinners. He was doing that miracle as an echo of what had happened in the Old Testament. You remember in the Old Testament, when the people came up out of Egypt, the Lord provided them with heavenly manna, uh, heavenly bread. And that was the way in which they were sustained in the wilderness. And God was teaching them that God cares for them. But he was also teaching them that he is the source of life. He is the one who gives them life and sustains their life. And they are to live trusting in him. Now, when Jesus did that miracle of feeding the 5,000, Jesus was really highlighting that he is that expression of God's care, that he ultimately is the provision of life, that in him we can find eternal life. And ultimately, that miracle is anticipating what would happen at the cross. Because when Jesus gave up his life on the cross... He did so as the Passover lamb, which is what we're really celebrating this morning. He did so as the lamb of God who laid down his life. And that in doing that, we find our life in him. So Jesus was communicating that he is the source of life and that in him we find life. So that miracle had great significance. And that's why each of the gospels includes it. This helps us understand the person and work of Jesus. He is the compassion of God, and he is the source and giver of eternal life. But now we're being told of this miracle being done a second time. And Mark includes it in his gospel. And we might be wondering, why does Mark include it again? 
And it seems that we can mention a couple of reasons of why that is the case. Why under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is included another time. One reason seems to be what is implied, and the other reason is one that is supplied. First, there is what is implied. In the preceding chapters, you remember that Jesus has been on the move. He was moving to the districts of Tyre and Sidon along the Mediterranean coast, and there he was encountering people like the Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile. And you remember how he uh, ultimately did a miracle, ultimately how he showed the compassion of God towards that Syrophoenician woman. It was an expression of God's care. But you remember that then he went down to the Decapolis in an area where he healed a man who was deaf. And that Decapolis region is a region that is largely composed of Gentiles. And if Jesus was still in that same region, then what is implied here is is that Jesus is doing this miracle in the presence of not just Jews, but in the presence of Gentiles as well. In an area that is composed of Gentiles, they too are recipients, likely, of this miracle. And so what that would be conveying is, is that we are being given side by side these two miracles. Just as Jesus showed compassion on Jews in feeding the 5,000, so now he is also showing compassion on Gentiles as well, who were given the same benefits, who are given that same compassion as well. And all of this is really what was demonstrated with the Syrophoenician woman, that even to the Gentiles, the crumbs of God's goodness come to them as well. It doesn't deprive the children of Israel, but rather it extends beyond them to include the Gentiles. So there is perhaps an implied reason if we think of the context. If Jesus is still in the Decapolis, uh, in that region of the wilderness when he does this, it would suggest that the recipients of this miracle are composed of Jews and Gentiles. But there's also a supplied reason, and it's there in verse 4. If you turn to verse 4, Jesus, it says his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? The disciples express something here that really seems to be at the center of this miracle. They are, they are questioning how is it that, that they can be fed. How is it that all of these people can be fed out here in the wilderness? Which reveals something about the disciples. Which reveals something of their dullness to understand. We highlighted that these two miracles are separate incidences. That's clear because there's different details. There's different numbers of people. Uh, We have 5,000 men and then we have 4,000 people. We have different details in terms of the food. Uh, There's different numbers of loaves and a different description even of the fish. But there's also many similarities as well. There's a similarity in terms of it being a large feeding. There's a similarity that both of them are taking place in the wilderness. As we mentioned, a meeting place with God. But also there's a similarity, not just in terms of uh, the wilderness, but both of them highlight that this is being done out of Jesus' compassion. The first time Jesus did it because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This time we're told it's because they've been with Jesus now for three days. And he's afraid that if they leave, they will grow weary and faint along the way. 
because many of them have come from a far distance. Jesus then is showing compassion in both of these accounts, uh, uh, which is under, underlying the, the similarity uh, of these events. And we should ask the question, what were they doing with Jesus for three days? Um, these people stayed, they remained with Jesus for three days. And we must conclude that there would have been a great deal of teaching going on during this time. And so Jesus' compassion is his intentionality of shepherding these people and leading them in God's truth. So all of this highlights something of the similarity. And yet the disciples, when they are seeing this great crowd again, they say, how can one feed such a great crowd in such a desolate place? And really, we should be thinking to ourselves, they should know better than that. The disciples know the answer to that because they just saw it happen. You remember the first time it happened, they were out and they looked at the situation and they said, we should send them away. We should send them into the neighboring villages so that they can get themselves to eat something. They, they were trying to solve the problem. They were trying to look at a resolution, but they were doing it without reference to Jesus. And so they were saying the most natural thing to do, Jesus, would be to let them go. And then Jesus went ahead and said, I will provide for it. And Jesus himself gave them the food to sustain them uh, in that miracle. But now, fast forward to the second occurrence, and as they look at the situation again, we see that their, their way of looking at things hasn't changed. They're still looking at the situation without reference to Jesus. And the problem that they see, they're still trying to overcome it without reference to the Lord Jesus. And all of that is uncovering something of their own dullness of understanding. They should have been uh, recognizing uh, Jesus in that situation. After all, they were the ones who handed out the bread. They were the ones who collected the leftover fragments. They were witnesses of what Jesus had done. They had seen it with their own eyes. And yet when the situation resurfaces, it hasn't impacted the way that they are living. Although they saw it, it still didn't click. Although they knew Jesus did something, it didn't transform the way that they were living. And all of this is uncovering something of their inability to understand the things of God. Despite what they had been exposed to, it did not change the way they looked at things. They weren't looking at them in light of Christ. And that's a reflection of, of our depravity. Because in spite of what is presented to us, it doesn't shape us as it ought to. That we don't live in light of God's revelation, but we continue to live on the basis of how we think or on the basis of how I see things, rather than on the basis of what God has shown us or what God has said. So there's a detection of something that's wrong here because the disciples are asking a question that we would think, but they know the answer to that. They should. How are we going to feed all these people? Jesus has already shown them that he is able to feed a multitude. That's what the first miracle demonstrated. And then we are told that after things started to play out just as before, Jesus asks the exact same question. How many loaves do you have? And then we're told that the same 
uh, pattern emerges. Jesus takes the bread, he receives it, gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it out uh, to those in the, in the crowds. And again, we're told that the people who were there were satisfied and, and then Jesus left. And so there's a playing out uh, of a, a great overlap between those two miracles. But not only was there a detection of something, something's not right in the disciples, but there's a demonstration of a great problem in the Pharisees. In verses 11 and following, we're told that the Pharisees came and they began to argue with Jesus. This is some time later, after uh, Jesus left uh, and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees at some point came to him and they were seeking a sign from him in order to test him. This isn't the first time that the Pharisees have approached Jesus. Uh, this has become the expected and the typical pattern of the Pharisees. They are opposing Jesus. They are hostile to Jesus. And here when they come, they come arguing with Jesus again. But we see their hostility uh, even in the way that they approach. It tells us that they came asking Jesus or demanding from Jesus a sign from heaven. Uh, a sign from heaven in order to test him. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with seeking a sign. Uh, Moses himself was a prophet, but Moses gave a sign confirming that he was the Lord's servant. He gave signs to the elders of Israel, and he gave signs to Pharaoh even, demonstrating that he was the Lord's messenger. And so a sign in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but rather it is what is expressed there. They asked for a sign in order to test him. Their motive then was not sincere. Their motive was not authentic, but rather their motive was really to discredit him. The only time that we use this language of to test him in, in the Gospels, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, is to describe the attitudes of Pharisees and the attitudes of Satan himself. Satan came to Jesus to test him, meaning to bring about his downfall. And in the same way, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus, trying to bring about his downfall in the eyes of others. And so they come demanding a sign from him. And Jesus uh, responds to them, uh, um, astonished and dismayed by their resistance, uh, and says, why, is, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Part of what is so astonishing is, is that what were they really looking for when they said they wanted some kind of divine confirmation, some kind of heavenly sign that Jesus is who he claimed to be? In light of all the miracles that Jesus has been doing, in light of the fact that Jesus even cast out demons in the presence of the scribes, the religious scribes, what more were they really looking for? And that's really the issue, isn't it? Jesus is really centering on, there's a, there's a heart attitude here being expressed that they don't want to be convinced. And they're, they're shoving off everything that has happened and saying, give us something else. But it is still resting with them to ultimately make the determination whether the sign is good enough. And so Jesus here uh, expresses his uh, uh, dismay at their attitude and ultimately says, Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. 
the literal translation of it is kind of uh, uh, interesting because Jesus says something that is uh, an unended sentence, but it's more of a, a phrase where Jesus is expressing what people believe to be an idiom. And some see it as almost a, a, a pronouncement of judgment. He, he, what Jesus is saying is, is, truly, I say unto you, if a sign be given. And many take that as almost Jesus, as Jesus saying, truly, I say to you, if a sign were going to be given to you, may judgment fall on me. And that's what Jesus is expressing against their resistance. And then we're told that Jesus turns and leaves. So the Pharisees come to Jesus they come to test Jesus, but their, their intention is not sincere, but rather it is one of hardened opposition. They don't want Jesus, and now they are intentional about trying to get rid of Jesus. And they show something of their own attitude in the way that they approach him. You may be sitting here this morning as someone who sympathizes with the Pharisees, someone who can say, I need more evidence. Uh, I would believe if there was more evidence. But ask yourself, what kind of evidence would satisfy you? What kind of evidence are you really looking for in order to believe in the gospel? Are, are, is there something that you're actually holding on to as saying, this is a legitimate basis for my objection or my barrier to faith? Or is it just becoming a smokescreen to prevent having to think seriously about the claims of Christ? Are you simply saying, I don't want to go there, and so I'll just throw up the idea that there's not enough evidence? But even if that is what we're saying, are we being sincere in our objection? And then we have to also recognize that here in Scripture, it is our responsibility to live in response to what the signs that have been revealed. Jesus has revealed signs. He has demonstrated that he was called by God. That's what the miracles are showing us. And we're really in a position where we are not bartering. We're not really making demands of what God must do, but rather living in response to what God has done. So there is a detection of a problem in the, Pharisees, in the disciples. They don't seem to grasp the significance of what Jesus did in that first miracle. There's a demonstration of something terribly wrong because these Pharisees, are hardened in their opposition to Jesus, where they're asking for something, but really they are trying to get rid of Jesus, which expresses their own heart's attitude. But then thirdly, there is a danger, which really pulls together these three events. It tells us that uh, afterwards uh, they uh, left, and Jesus was still thinking about that encounter with the Pharisees. In verse 15, he turned to his disciples, and he said, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus is still thinking about how the attitude of these men expressed itself in its resistance to him. And now he turns to his disciples and says, watch out for that. Sometimes you walk by houses and you'll see up on the, the glass window a sign that says, beware of dog. Meaning if you come into this property you have to realize that there is a dog and we're not accountable for what that dog does to you. You have to know that there is a danger of coming onto this property or into this house. And here Jesus is highlighting a danger before these disciples. It's the danger of something that he sees both in the Pharisees and in Herod. 
and he tells them to watch out. He describes it like leaven. Leaven is that fermented substance that causes a dough to rise, to, to really change in its very makeup. It, it, it is changed in the way it looks. And Jesus here is talking about something in the Pharisees, something in Herod, that brings a complete change in the way that they live. In Matthew's account, uh, the leaven that is being spoken of is the leaven of the Pharisees' teaching. Not that everything the Pharisees said was wicked and wrong, but there was something in their teaching. There was something in their teaching that permeated throughout. It was a certain attitude that shaped everything that they were doing. And like a drop of poison in a glass uh, of water, it just permeates and affects everything. And Jesus here was warning his disciples to be aware of something that he saw in the Pharisees. That might seem strange that Jesus is warning his disciples about something that he sees in the Pharisees. But Jesus knows the subtlety of sin and he knows the tendency of the heart. And so Jesus here is saying there's something in the Pharisees that you need to be aware of. The Pharisees had an attitude of self-sufficiency. They didn't want Jesus because they were righteous. They didn't want to respond to God's revelation because they were self-sufficient. And that, that permeated everything they do. We are the children of Abraham. We are righteous. And so they became more and more hostile to Jesus as his claims became more and more apparent. And Jesus here is highlighting that if we're not living in light of God's revelation, there's an underlying root problem of self-sufficiency where I'm okay as I am. I don't need to live in light of Jesus. I don't need Jesus to live a fulfilled life. And that shows itself whether you're religious or unreligious. You can be a Pharisee and have the leaven of the Pharisees, or you can be a Herod and have the leaven of Herod. The Pharisees didn't need Jesus, they thought, because they were right with God already. I have done a lot of good things. And God will accept me because I'm a good person. Herod lived a very different life. But Herod didn't have any need of Jesus either. Because he wasn't concerned about those matters. He was concerned about his own acquisitions, his own affluency, his own security. And so he was living with this mindset of this world. And so today it's the same. People can live a life where they're very religious. But they think because they're moral... They don't need Jesus. I am a good person. And if I do enough good things when I die, I go to heaven. And other people live this life thinking, I don't need Jesus. Because that doesn't give me a fulfilled life. My wealth will. My friendships will. But I'm not concerned about Jesus. And Jesus is saying, beware of that leaven that begins to permeate and spread. A leaven that spreads because we're not living in light of God's revelation. A leaven that spreads because we're living just based on how we think things are. A leaven that ultimately is saying, I live on the basis of my own reason, rather than living in light of what God has revealed. 
And so Jesus does make a warning here to his disciples. And you notice again the disciples miss it. The mention of leaven makes them think of bread. And the mention of bread makes them think of they only had one loaf. And now they're suddenly again concerned about their material resources. The, the scarcity of food that they have. And Jesus then rebukes the disciples. In verses 17 and following, he says, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Those words of Jesus might come across a little harsh. And yet what you see actually is Jesus' compassion. Because he's intervening here. The Pharisees objected to what Jesus was doing. And in their hardness of heart, they were trying to discredit him. And ultimately, Jesus walked away. But here with the disciples, they don't get it. And yet Jesus continues to push. He continues to point out to them the truth. He is engaging with them and leading them in the truth. He even impresses upon them, do you not yet understand? Because Jesus has a confidence that these are ones who are called by God. These are ones who will come to an understanding. And so he is impressing these things upon them in a way that shows God's compassion in spite of their dullness. They will eventually understand these things. Because just as Jesus is causing them to think about what has just happened, he's bringing these things to their understanding. That's ultimately what the work of the Spirit would be. Jesus said he would send his Spirit who would cause them to bring into remembrance all that he has done. And when they understand these things, they will embrace them. And they will understand God's goodness. And so Jesus here is showing how the hardness is overcome. It is by bringing us to an understanding of the truth. It is by informing our minds, but also by renewing our wills. And that's what the Spirit does in a person's life. What's going to cause a person who is dull to the things of God? A person who doesn't understand these things? What accounts for the change in people like Peter and the disciples? It's the fact that God worked in their lives. They didn't get it the first time. They didn't get it the second time. But God would renew their minds. He would cause them to believe. And they would rejoice when they understood these things in full. And so Jesus here is uh, highlighting uh, ultimately that it is the work of God that changes the will. Jesus said that truly no sign will be given to them. And we highlighted that really it's a a form of imprecation that Jesus is using as he says those words. Ultimately, another sign would be given, the sign of Jonah. And Jesus would be crucified. And then on the third day, he would be raised again from the dead. But even that sign from heaven would not convince many of the Pharisees. Many of those who were demanding a sign still didn't believe even after the resurrection which tells us it's not about the sign or the evidence. It's a problem of the heart that says, I don't want to believe. I want to live based on how I look at things rather than on the basis of what God has revealed. And so why has this miracle happened again? Why does Mark include it under the inspiration of the Spirit? To highlight a problem that people can be exposed to the truth and still not live in light of it. And there is a need for God's spirit to change us, to cause us to understand these things and to embrace them in faith. 
Where are we living this morning? Do we have an attitude of self-sufficiency? I don't need Jesus. I'm okay as I am. Or are we people who are being centered on what God has done and able to rejoice in God's work? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about uh, the warnings of Jesus, we pray, Lord, that uh, it would ultimately cause us uh, to humble ourselves before you, recognizing that we are people that are slow to understand. And we pray that your spirit would cause us to rejoice in your works and that we would have a certainty of uh, the God who is. Lord, we pray that uh, we would be encouraged knowing that uh, you are a God who will bring your works to pass and that uh, those who uh, belong to you uh, will uh, understand these things. Go before us now, we pray in Jesus' name.